Welcome to Heart of the Enneagram. I'm Chris Copeland. And I'm Sandra Smith. And we invite you to take a courageous and loving look at what is. Melancholy was the milk at my mother's breast. So I'm, I'm, I, I own melancholy more than depression, though I've had bouts with both, but mine just seems pretty much like garden variety. Melancholy, which I define more and more as being an appropriate sadness at the reality of things. Hi, Chris, it's good to see you again. Hi, Sandra. It's so good to be with you again. And uh, I'm excited about this season five that we're doing together uh, as we're listening to our elders and listening to elder wisdom. Uh, And today uh, we're going to be actually doing a little bit something different than what we've done before, where we're working with a guest who will be asking some questions and mutually discerning uh, what type she may be. So we'll be uh, doing that together. I'm excited about this, this new adventure. And as a reminder to ourselves and our listeners, um, this is a mutual discernment. The person, it's up to the person to name her or his type, and that requires some self-observation. And as a reminder as well, this is about motivation, not behavior. Um, I wanna just offer uh, from the Persian poet Hafiz a quote, just to remind us, what the Enneagram really is as a map. And Hafiz says, the small one builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to drop his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful rowdy prisoners. And so this is not a cage, but a set of keys to unlock self-limiting patterns of our type structure or ego structure. And we'll be exploring this unlocking today with our guest, uh, Barbara Brown-Taylor. We're excited to have Barbara with us today. She is a best-selling author and teacher and Episcopal priest. Uh, Her first memoir, Leaving Church, uh, won an Author of the Year Award from the Georgia Writers Association in 2006. And she served on the faculties of numbers of different schools and seminaries and institutions. Uh, and in 2014, uh, Time Magazine included her on its annual list of most influential people. Uh, her 14th book, Holy Envy, was released by Harper One in March of 2019. Uh, and uh, Barbara, I'm grateful to, that you agreed to be with us today, and we want to welcome you. Thank you so much. I'm sweating a lot about getting typed on the air. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to enhance our listening capacity, let's engage a presence practice. Um, So I invite all of us to take a couple deep breaths all the way down to the belly center and another deep breath to the belly center. And as you do this, simply be where your hands are. Now check in with your heart space, that center of intelligence, and just notice what your emotional state is right now. We're always in one. Just notice, acknowledge, and honor it. And as we come back to this session, 
May we come back with a more grounded presence, an open heart, and a curious mind. Thank you. Barbara, we want to start by asking uh, about your experience with the Enneagram. Tell us what your encounter and experience with the Enneagram has been. You see, I started my life with astrology. I'm a Virgo. Then uh, the Myers-Briggs um, inventory came in big while I was in parish ministry. So I'm an INFJ. Um, but what I found taking those tests was I often answered the way people told me I was instead of the way I sensed I was. So um, it took, took a while even to get used um, to the, the Myers-Briggs. Enneagram became such a big deal. It seemed like, you know, for a long time, everybody asked, wanted to know what type I was. And when I looked into it, it was, to me, um, complicated with wings and buttresses and things. You know. <laughs> I've read a ton on it. I've taken two or three quizzes, you know, free ones and professional ones, and I am still very undecided. So today's the day. Today's the day I'm, co I'm, right. co I'm committing <laughs> to something. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're excited. Well, thank you. Um, we'll start, Barbara, by just asking, uh, Give me uh, four adjectives that, that best describe yourself. Oh, God, this is not going to go well, is it? Because I, I am a writer, which means could I go think about it for about an hour, and then I'll come back and tell you the four? I think I'm impulsive. I think I'm impulsive. I think I'm creative. I think I am stubborn. And, uh, and I think I'm curious. Great, thank you. Um, when you say impulsive, what what is that like? It means that when something occurs to me, I usually drop whatever I'm doing to go do that. I mean, it may be another way to talk about it. I love to ride the energy of of a new idea or an impulse or an emotion or a thought, and I don't want to shelf it. I want to go act on it right then. So that can be rage sometimes. <laughs> that can be um, wanting to go out and pick the irises that I see blooming out the window before one drop of rain gets on them. But it does mean I don't love delay. I like to act on what's happening. Great, yeah. And And talk about, if you will, about creativity. That's everything from getting dressed in the morning to how I'll put breakfast on my plate to what cup I'll choose for my tea. It, creativity happens all day long. You know, it, it ends up where the world notices when it, for me when it, words make it onto a page somewhere. That's usually how my creativity gets registered in the world at large. But day to day, it's every single thing I do that involves arranging um, color, smell, taste. It's um, a moment-by-moment -moment exercise. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and what about two adjectives that others who know you well, what, what are ones they might use that, that may be the same or may be different? Chilly, um, introverted, unavailable. Those are the murderous ones. You know, when I finally found the book Quiet, um, it helped me so much to realize that was introversion, that it wasn't all the things that I have been called in my life, ice queen, on and on and on. So, uh, so other people, though, I think do still register me as ready to head for the door if, if, if I get anxious about 
about things. I should have put anxious in, in my in my adjectives. Come to think of it, highly anxious. <laughs> um, but other people, so other people might say that, and and they, I think other people might say that I'm a mind reader. I, I get that a lot. You've been reading my mail. You're reading my mind. You said what I always wanted to say, but didn't know how. And again that comes from outside of me, not inside of me, but I have heard other people say that. Mm. Maybe that's intuitive, I don't know. I was just gonna say, what's your intuition like? I think that goes with the impulsiveness, doesn't it? Of the wanting to act on the intuition, whatever it is, that, that intuition has gotten stronger for me as I've aged. I've learned it's just, it's just like any other living thing, that the more attention I pay to it, the, the more it draws near the less shy it becomes, the more true it becomes. One of the questions that comes up for me too is about sort of out of the box thinking. We talked a little bit about creativity before. I'm curious for you about what, is that something that you're aware of much for yourself? It's a practice. Um, most of the ways I think about what I wanna write or preach or speak about is to think about a topic and then uh, track the way the most of the culture seems to view that thing and then I turn around and look in the other direction because I'm positive there's, there's something ignored back there that if everybody's looking that way about productivity and being busy in social media there's something being ignored in the opposite direction so if that's out of the box behind the box I guess but but that has actually been a, such a helpful practice the perspective of what are we not seeing or where are we not looking Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where are most, most people looking? Would I read, you know, yeah. Where are most people looking? Let's look in the other direction or look around, mm -hmm. get more of a 180, 360. Nice. Barbara, what role does beauty play in your life? And I think that may have come out with Chris's question and your naming creativity, uh -huh. but I got a sense that it was important to you, but I'd like you to speak to that for a moment. The role of beauty. Um, beauty is like unto justice for me uh, in that the more I see the beauty in things and it's all around me living in the country as I do, it's there every day and it's not humanly arranged beauty, but the more I see what is beautiful, I see the disfiguration of what was beautiful or had been beautiful, but is in the process of being ruined or stripped or disfigured. So that brings up the impulse to fairness. Beauty and justice seem to go together. In other words, beauty is not just about pleasure for me. To appreciate what's lovely is to pine and yearn and hurt for that which has been made unlovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. The question that comes for me in that is, um, how often do you find yourself um, kind of doing that yearning or that longing maybe for what's not there or what's wrong? I think melancholy was the milk at my mother's breast. So I'm, I'm, I, I own melancholy more than depression, though I've had bouts with both, but mine just seems pretty much like garden variety. Melancholy, which I define more and more as being an appropriate sadness at the reality of things. Mm. You know, if we used Buddhist language instead, it would be the impermanence that's just inescapable. And there's an appropriate melancholy that everything lovely is passing away. I could get it out of Ecclesiastes, I guess, as well as the, the Four Noble Truths. But um, so I'm, I, I would call myself someone who's familiar with melancholy. Mm. I, I'm wondering, Barbara, um, how much um, 
this idea of com comparing mind has shown up in your life where you're comparing yourself to other people, their mm -hmm. gifts, their abilities, that sort of thing. Well, if it's envy, but, but the envy is usually mixed with admiration, especially what comes immediately to mind is just brilliant people who stand up and speak. Mm -hmm. And I've got my clutch of eight pages of big double space, double space, 16 font, you know, manuscript. And so I, I do compare and I say, I wish I could do that. And I don't do that. And I don't do that. Well, I do the written thing really well, but I so admire that in that mm -hmm. person or somebody with musical ability. So there's a lot of comparing my skills to their skills. But again, maybe it's about getting older. My skills seem like plenty. And mm -hmm. so I'll always compare, but I think not in a way in which I require myself to have everything I notice that I admire in somebody else. Yeah. What would you name as some of your great gifts? I think I've mentioned them all. Um, I think some of my great strengths are curiosity. I hope I die learning a new language. I mean, I just, I hope I'm always curious about something there is to know that I don't know yet. I think stubbornness is a, is a great strength. Although for me, it turns into drivenness and perfectionism a lot, but those things allow me to produce pretty good work. It takes a lot out of me. Um, I think um, that eccentric kind of placement is a strength. Um, what I've noticed though, especially in these last few weeks is that I enjoy being alone. I, I can hardly remember a time I would have said I was lonely. I'm alone a lot. I seek alone time a lot, but I don't get lonely. And and that seems to be a great help right now because I am not going crazy with my confinement. If anything, it's a very, it's a blessing. It's a it's an immersion in bliss because all the out outer culture of productivity has changed, and I've got some real volition about how much I want in or out, and I'm out of it right now. So nice. Are there strengths that have um, blossomed as you've gotten older that you've noticed? Um, I have found, again, greater resistance to the culture of productivity. It's so much easier for me to say, thank you so much for thinking of me, but my calendar is as full as I want it to be. I have found myself able to say that. Not I'm busy, not my calendar's full, because those are lies, but my calendar is as full as I want it to be. Um, I have found a new ability to rest without being sick. And I have found above all um, a real happiness with friendships, which I haven't had time for in my life. I had big work life, uh, a big intimate, close, you know, primary family life and a uh, um, self self care, but that didn't leave room for much friendship. So I've really, really relaxed into that, especially intergenerational friendships. Oh, oh, do I love my young friends. <laughs> what do you love about them? Well, I love that they, they um, don't share my uh, despair about things, not, not particularly melancholy, most of them. Haven't, haven't lived through the decades I've lived through. I've got a kind of can-do-ness, and, and they like me because I remind them they're not invincible. So we do a real trade-off in terms of they, they give me their energy and their kind of sprouting hopefulness, and I get to give them not wisdom, because I don't know how much of that I have, but, but I am the most appreciative listener most of them have. I just love 
to know what they're up to. Mm. And I don't have children or grandchildren, by the way. I have two grandchildren by marriage and two daughters by marriage, but no fruit of my own mm. body. So I, I think I work some of that out with students and with these younger friends. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that leads into a question that Chris and I uh, crafted, which is if you, if you could spend an hour with your younger self, I hear you mm -hmm. speaking of these young friends, but if you, could, if you had an hour with your 20-year-old self, given your 68-year-old self now, what, what would you say to her? Now, Chris told me he was going to ask about my 25-year-old <laughs> self. <laughs> well, you, get, you choose. You get to choose. You okay. choose the age. You get to choose. Well, well, and here's the only reason it matters is when I was 25 in 1976, I was a newly confirmed Episcopalian, graduating from Yale Divinity School, divorcing my husband of two years after he had found the real love of his life, and I was heading back to Georgia with no marketable skills. So it was a really kind of broken up in little pieces time. But as I thought about what I would say to the 25-year-old me, it's not that much different from what I say to the 68-year-old me. I would say, look at all the pieces you have to work with. I would say, don't try too hard to fix things too fast because these things have their own seasons. Um, someone will love you again. You're not defective. Trust the slow work of God, in the words of Teilhard de Chardin. Um, read all you want, but what you want is not in a book. And ask other people for their wisdom all you want, but not as a substitute for your own. Because you're laying down a path, one paving stone at a time, and your job's to lay down the next stone. Um, all you're responsible for is the next one. And then I would end with my parents' goodbye on Friday nights with dad saying, have fun, and mom saying, be careful. So th that would be my advice to the 25-year-old me. Have fun and be careful. We make the path as we walk. I love that. Yeah. 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 And that you have all the pieces. Is that what you, I heard you say that? You already have the pieces? Well, it's about the broken pieces. When everything is, is broken to hell, look how many pieces you have to work with. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there's so many different ways these pieces could be put back together and don't do it with cement because guess what? They're going to break again. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think I got a, a wonderful immersion at 25 in being in a kind of fractured place, vocationally, romantically, educationally. And it, it, uh, it was a wonderful cure for a kind of 25-year-old arrogance. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, narcissistic woundedness that took five or six years to come to terms with but it, it also taught me early on that that things come back together they they do but not into a permanent shape so maybe i was a juggler i learned to be a good juggler of pieces maybe i think the question that's coming up for me and i thought of it earlier is the one about practices um you know like what are practical spiritual emotional that what are those practices that you've found in your life that have most supported you? The practices that have supported me, uh, I would have a very difficult time putting them in practical and then spiritual columns, because to me, those, are, those flow into one another like river into the ocean. So I can't separate them out um, very much, but I'm, I'm clear that staying alive, physically alive, using it so I don't lose it is huge. So the practice for the past 25 years of living on a farm and hauling hay and heavy sacks of feed and breaking ice in water bowls and 
looking at the weather to see what the animals are going to need. Um, being physical in my body has been huge. I've adopted a practice as of two years ago of picking up the trash on my two-mile dead-end road, and it has ended up to be so wonderful. It's a four-mile walk, and in the fall, I can tell you every mushroom that's out, and in the spring, I can name the wildflowers for you, and I, and I know that if there's a new house being built on my road, I'm going to find a whole lot of wine and beer bottles in the gutter as the workmen go home at the end of the day and fling things out the the door, but that has ended up being more my prayer and meditation time than anything else I do. It's environmentally productive. It's so, it's an all around helpful thing. Um, I, I love cooking with what's available. I like eating seasonally. I'm married to an organic farmer. So when he brings me up, you know, kale, Brussels sprouts, chives, and little purple pansies that's what I've got to work with. You know, with a few supplies, maybe including some venison from a hunter who, who brought me part of her deer. Um, I like um, eating with my husband with no screens or papers. Uh, we light a candle, we sit down, even if it's just 20 minutes. Um, that is a deeply spiritual practice to me once I've put a meal together out of, I call them meals ex nihilo sometimes, because they really are out of nowhere. <laughs> but you end up with a good meal and to sit down and eat that and, you know, say a prayer of thanks before it is just as good as it gets. Formally, spiritually, you know, I also have done a lot with prayer and meditation on a bench in a lot of different forms. I, I think I'd take up a practice for a decade at a time, do Sabbath for a decade at a time, and 20 minutes in the morning and evening for a decade at a time. So prayer, meditation on a bench. Um, reading is a huge spiritual practice in, in incarnational theology, especially fiction. Just how do people act? How do people abide in relationships how do relationships explode i read and read and read a lot of fiction but where i landed with that is um the practice of the presence of god brother lawrence wrote that book and talked about picking a straw up off the kitchen floor uh, from the love of god and and that really is the core practice for me is staying as aware every minute of every day i talk to plants a lot too and trees butterflies, um, but to stay aware as much of the day as I can that I'm in the divine presence and to respond to that. Do you want to speak more to what is bedrock for you? I love the question, and and uh, and I, I think I come down to um, the cyclical nature of life. I have bedrock trust and confidence in the rising and falling of things, and it it's not even a metaphor, is it? But the the grass springing green right now with chickens, little chicks are hatching out from under every piece of anything in my yard. <laughs> and then pretty soon it'll be summer and there'll be perishing heat and drought and there'll be chickens carried off by foxes and um, hawks. And then there'll be the beautiful dying in the fall with that kind of smell of ozone that comes into the air when people burn their leaves. And then there'll come the hibernation of winter. Um, and it's odd to say, but that I have huge, that's huge bedrock for me, is, is faith that where it is is not where it will be and not where it will stop. And that this is the way human beings have been living forever. 
in Buddhist terms, to make peace with impermanence within the shape of a circle, and in Christian terms, to surrender to the rising and falling, you know, the life and the death and the resurrection. Great book called Abandonment to Divine Providence by Jean-Pierre de Cassade in the 18th century. And I, I read that in seminary, and I don't think of providence the way a Presbyterian would, but that surrendering to the cycle of living and dying and yielding and jubilating and grieving just seems to me like bedrock. Mm. Um, I can talk a long time, as you can tell, the love of a good man uh, and great fights with him after 37 years. The other day I told him to get out of the car right now, get out of the car and walk to the road. Because <laughs> if you tell me how to drive one more time, I'm going to ram my car into a tree and then you'll be sorry. And Ed is so wonderful. He just got out of the car. He was so great. And then I picked him up at the top of the road. He said, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he got back in the car. So I don't know where I'd be without him. You know, he is affected by me, but not too affected by me. So it's, he's a really good person for an impulsive person to live with. It's kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. You'll calm down. Um, bedrock. Creative agency of some kind, making things. Shade garden, Japanese dumpling, a book. Um, uh, so bedrock is being more and more and more aware of my small place in the much larger frame of things, whether the frame is creation or history. Um, being 68 has really convinced me I am not the alpha and omega. You know, I, it there's very little that's going to begin with me and end with me. I have a little tiny part to play in the evolution of humankind. And... And that has involved a lot of surrender, you know, of all the things I won't finish. I'll die with a to-do list. So those are, those, that, those are the bedrocks that came to me today and a large animal family. I, I need not people. It's good I didn't have children. They would all be so ill. They would all be so maladjusted. <laughs> but the animals don't talk, so that's great. <laughs> Barbara, at, at 68 and, and considering your life, how have you most surprised yourself? Um, I think we've talked about it some. It has surprised me still to be, I, my picture of 68 was a little old woman on a walker. Oh. You know, I mean, this, this does not match what I thought 68 would look like or feel like, um, though though things are headed south. That has been surprising to me that I have such a sense of vitality and vulnerability because I've watched it go in a flash mm -hmm. with people I love. It's just here one day and gone the next. So making peace with that, you know, it, it increases my joy and the vitality I have now. Mm -hmm. And again, more and more and more ability to say, thank you so much for thinking of me, but no, yeah. I'm just, I'm just going to percolate in my own Thing right now defending defending sabbath and defending rest and even finding a way to talk about retirement that um sounds like the incredible gift that it is i can live on social security now my house is paid for and i know people at home with small children whose livelihoods have evaporated so how lucky am i mm -hmm. those those don't go straight to your to your question, but I, um, I've been surprised at how much fire I still have and how I know how to 
damp the fire as well, better than I used to. Mm. There's a beauty, and I'm experiencing this as a beauty in what you're sharing, and so I'm feeling that in my own self. I just want to offer gratitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your latest book is Holy Envy. I'm curious mm -hmm. about, was there a particular, um, that particular topic or that particular frame? How did that come about for you in terms of spending your energy writing and thinking about that? Yeah, like all the other um, books, I think I still have a pastor's heart, which is I'm drawn to topics that I hear people talking a lot about. So the one before Holy Envy was learning to walk in the dark because so many people talked about being lost in the dark mm -hmm. and, and being, you know, without God in the dark. And I thought, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think God does pretty well in the dark. So, <laughs> so that's where that one came from. And then Holy Envy, I had taught world religions at the college level for so long that whenever I met people and told them that, they wanted to know all about the class, you know, because... Religious pluralism is all in the news, religious literacy, cultural literacy, all in the news. So the, a classroom memoir seemed to me like the perfect way to do that. And that was the book I intended, kind of a love letter to 20 years worth of students. But then the editor said, where are you? Where are you in this? What's it like for a Christian to be teaching other traditions as, as lovely traditions? You know, when that's so, so he really did make it a two-way book where I also put in a lot about um, how teaching world religions really shifted my practice of my own faith. There was a line in that book that grabbed me, Barbara, and I, I, don't, I didn't write the line down, but it was something like I used to see the grass was greener in the religious tradition next door. And mm, then, always. And then I thought, or maybe I'm trying to make peace with the realities of my own. Mm. I just thought that was beautiful. Mm. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, I, I still am sure they're all doing it better than I am. <laughs> that, that every Muslim is praying five times a day and fasting during Ramadan and every Buddhist meditates for an hour every morning. <laughs> and it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> is that comparing mind? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. That's comparing my whole community, right? <laughs> the one one. Uh, wondering I have, Barbara, is about this idea of gratitude or a gratitude uh, orientation or practice. Is that something that's been meaningful for you or important for you at all? I think I am by nature a, a glass half full person, so gratitude comes easily to me, I believe. But I do have dear friends who have gratitude practices, whether it's keeping a journal or, you know how my gratitude practice comes out is letter writing. Letter writing, mm -hmm. card writing, remembering birthdays, I'm so thankful you're alive. Sending care packages to people who are, you know, ill or this. Now that I've said that, anyone listening, I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing this for you. <laughs> Uh, so now that you mentioned it, that's how it would come out is I think for me, it's on paper, pen and paper and nice stationery and, you know, but I've not done journaling. Journaling I did for years and years, but I realized I wanted to burn most of it. I didn't want anybody to read it later. So. Barbara, both of us are certified in the narrative tradition, and in that training process, um, we just flunk if we just give somebody one type to consider. <laughs> 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 so we'll, we'll give you a couple. 
and uh, mm -hmm. you might then share with us what, what you've been reading and thinking and what came up for you. Barbara, you uh, indicated this as a, um, that some of your friends had mentioned type four for you. And um, there's certainly um, a lot of resonance in what we heard in terms of that type. Um, the one, the image that sticks in my mind when I, where the very first question I asked about um, things that describe you, you were talking about creativity and, and you were talking about every day, like the, the, how I make my breakfast, how I set the coffee cup, how I, you know, that sort of attention to both beauty and creativity, um, that's very much uh, the orientation of four. Now, again, other types can be creative and, and artistic, of course, but, but that kind of, uh, it's like the, it was almost, I heard it as sort of like every, it's every decision almost, everything mm -hmm. is about beauty or creativity. And that's, uh, as fours, we, and I'm, I lead with type four, uh, tend to kind of, that's our lifeblood, right? Mm -hmm. Is that cre creative way of thinking and imagining and possibility. So that's one uh, image that stuck out for me. Um, and then the, um, this question of, I asked the question about comparing mind and that's some of what fours will do. And, and actually you use the word, I asked the word, I asked about comparing mind and you use the word envy in response to it. Fours will tend to uh, do this comparison because there's a sense underneath the comparison, and this is where it gets kind of juicy and powerful, is there's this sense of like something in me is, is missing. There's something in me and my core that's incomplete. Like I'm not complete, I'm not connected. And so I'm looking outside and I'm seeing that you have this gift or you have this ability and it, it pings something inside of me, this deep fear that I'm not connected or that there's something wrong or missing with me. And so um, we didn't go into the depth of that, but I, but as I heard you talk about uh, the comparing mind and you brought the word envy, that's, I heard some resonance there as well. Barbara, you used the word melancholy, and you had this sense of melancholy, this feeling, and it's not sadness, and you had a particular description for it, and each of the nine Enneagram types has a particular mental fixation, and for type four, it's melancholy, oh. and there's, <laughs> there's just a little juiciness or longing in melancholy, mm -hmm. and sometimes mm -hmm. that, can, um, that can support creativity, I don't know mm -hmm. if that's been true for you. And then I mm -hmm. loved um, when you talked about your teaching and if people were looking one way, you wanted to look the other. Mm -hmm. And it's almost, so the focus of attention for type four is on what's missing. Where are we not looking? Uh -huh. What's not here? And mm -hmm. I heard, heard that a couple times in our conversation with you. And it's, a, it's such a beautiful and valid perspective. Um, mm -hmm. I lead with type eight. And when I'm making a decision, that's the perspective I go to because my denial will tell me I have what I need. When in mm -hmm. fact, I need to consider what I don't have that I need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all, all nine perspectives, we need them all and they're so valid. And of course our journey is to bring, to bring all of them in so that we, you know, develop our, uh, we develop cognitively like that. What struck me was your sense of humor, your yeah, honesty, yeah. and your authenticity. And I just, mm -hmm. I just have delighted in this conversation with you because of that. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Do you want to add, Sandra, another type? You want to bring another type in? Well, I, I will say that 
<clears throat> there are three types that are expressive or known as the intensity types. And those types are four, six, and eight. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I just saw some of that in this, that, that triad in you. Would you agree with mm -hmm. that, Chris? Just these intensity yeah, definitely. types. Definitely. And I, you know, it's, it's funny because I did hear a little, some six pieces, mm -hmm. a little bit of pinging of six, you know, particularly as we talk about doubt and self-doubt, that's a big part of the six yes. type is sort of, uh, and, and, and skepticism sometimes, I think Sandra brought that word in, but this sort of like, can I really trust myself? Can I really trust others? So there's a struggle with authority, for example. Um, so there was some resonance there. Mm -hmm. You know, I could I could make a, a slim case for eight. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, you you know when you're angry, you can say, "Ed, get out of the car." Um, <laughs> it's right there; it just comes up, and and your energy is kind of big, Barbara. You have you know, you have big energy. At least, <laughs> you see, yeah, it's just been delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, and you use the word um, impulsive, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's a word that sometimes we would associate with eight as well, because mm -hmm. there's a sense because eights kind of know and then they move. So mm -hmm. there's just kind of you know, this knowing, and there can be kind of an impulsive uh, action. So I heard some of that too. Shall we say we would leave her with those three types? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Chris and I and other podcasts have said that we don't. Uh, put a lot of value in online tests. That it, that <laughs> That's it, good. Yeah, that it's about, you know, how I observe myself and where my patterns are. You know, what pattern has mm -hmm. consistently tripped me up? And that's mm -hmm. a trailhead to finding our particular Enneagram type or ego structure because mm -hmm. these are self-limiting patterns. They serve us, mm -hmm. uh, but they're also self-limiting. And mm -hmm. it's really the ego that invites us into the journey. Oh, that's how I trip myself up. Or that's what, that's my blind spot. Let me go into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any questions of us or the system or anything else you want to say? Um, no, I just feel like I should send you both a check for $150 each because this is just like a, all this attention is just making me very grateful and self-conscious all at the same time. But no, it's so generous of you both, so generous to do this with me. Thank you very much. So that that is, um, I don't have any questions. It'll be fun, though, to take what you've said. I think that's about it probably on a four, but I'll go look at the six and eights again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I was so touched by the wisdom you shared, the sharing mm -hmm. of the story of your life. Um, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, uh, Barbara, one question we wanted to ask you is how you have seen your life as pilgrimage? I love the question because I notice how often that is used as a fruitful metaphor along with journey and people talk about their journeys. I think I talked about it a little bit earlier about how I've made peace with just placing one paving stone at a time. But when I switch the metaphor, here's what I don't love about journey or pilgrimage is in my mind, it's always about getting somewhere and getting the stamp on my passport and taking my selfie so that I can make everybody look at where I got to or all of us on the way or something. Whereas a labyrinth, who wants pictures of somebody in a labyrinth nobody you know but I think it, it, my life as a labyrinth makes total sense to me because there are times when I think I'm near 
but I'm really far. And there are things, there are times I think I'm far and I'm really near. Um, there's always a temptation to step over the lines and just go straight to where I damn want to go and not follow that path mm. that has been laid out. Um, there's also a slight letdown when I get to the middle because mm. I so loved the finding my way to the middle, that getting to the middle is kind of a letdown, though going out is just as much fun as coming in. Uh, and, and also dating to the time that I got to go to Shark Cathedral and walk a huge labyrinth with a lot of people. Wow, was that different to be in a labyrinth with people passing me and coming toward me and moving around me and some were dancing and some would sit down and cry for a while. That was huge. So I, I, am, I, I love your opening for me to switch the metaphor from pilgrimage to labyrinth and to realize how deeply truthful that sounds in terms of the cyclical nature of things, the repetition of the journey, you know, and things looking familiar, but new every time because I'm a new person walking the labyrinth every time. So I really am grateful for your question so that I could switch the terms of it just a little bit to where it felt very true. Well, what a delightful time this has been with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the gift of your wisdom and your time, Barbara. And yours as well to me. Thanks so much. Thank you. So with, with heartfelt gratitude, I'm Sandra. And I'm Chris. And we invite you to continue to take a courageous and loving look at what is. We want to thank all who've made this podcast a reality, including Wake Forest University Program for Leadership and Character for their financial and institutional support. Sally Ann Morris, who created our theme music, and Logan Greenhall, who's been a great website guru for us. Also, thanks to Eric Merle for his quality editing expertise. Special thanks to the Narrative Enneagram and our mentors, Helen Palmer and Dr. David Daniels, its founders. And of course, a big thank you to all of our guests. For more information about this podcast and how to get a copy of our book, this serves as a companion for deepening personal and spiritual growth, visit heartoftheenneagram.com. And be sure to click the subscribe link so you don't miss an episode. In the days that lie ahead, may your mind be curious, your heart courageous, and your presence compassionate.